Good morning. Um, Today's scripture is Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advanced against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his his temple. For in the day of trouble he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me from the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your, your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Pray with me. God, we um, we like to pray, to be in conversation with you. Part of the way we listen to you when you speak to us is through the reading of your word. Through these texts, through these songs like we're going to be reading today. And I pray as we read these that we would let our hearts sing out in unison with David that we would be able to live and feel and recall you and see our need for you and Lord most of all yearn for you God I pray that that as I seek to deepen our our grasp our desire for the, to know this text and to live this text that you would Bless the words that come out of my mouth, that your spirit would be in what I say, so that it's not me saying it, but, but it's, the, it's you, Lord. It's humbling to say that, to admit that nothing I can do will make this text more known, resonate more truly, but only what you can do in our hearts. We pray this in your name. Amen. <clears throat> All right, we are taking a break um, from a series for one week. We're going to be jumping into a series on Nehemiah. You will love it, even though you have probably no clue about Nehemiah. I guarantee you you will love it. Um, it's been super fun to build. We're going to take a break for this week. And we're, going to, we're just going to take a week to live in a psalm. We're going to take a week to live in a psalm. The psalms are soothing in a way. Not because they're always so calm and lovely and everything's so, so bright and cheery, but actually to the opposite. 
that the Psalms are a place where I feel like God gets me. I feel like his word is singing what I'm saying. I feel like sometimes the psalmists, like David today, are swimming in the chaos, in the turmoil, in the unknowns of life. And they, they, they grasp with what they know and they sit in what they don't know and how they don't know to understand and, and, and where they're, they're confused and they anchor themselves like David does today. So today I, I want to ask this question with the psalm. The psalm struck me this week, and I, and I asked this question, what do we do with fear? The first verse of this says, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? So the question is, what do we hear as people living in Portland, as people living in America, as people living in the 21st century, and people living in a constant crazy news cycle that's buzzing on our phones and our watches and assaulting us everywhere we go. What do we do with the manufactured anxiety? What do we do um, with our own sense of aloneness and lostness? What do we do when we confront the void in our life, when we finally sit down in a moment of quiet and we feel emptiness? How do we fight the fears that come barreling at us every moment? How do we fight that? We have all kinds of fears. Right now our country is reeling in fear. We have fear of global epidemic, right? And even though individually some of us may have varying degrees of fear, as a culture, as a world, we see markets tumbling. We see just crazy amounts of fear. And their, their fear of health, but they cascade into fear of finances, into fear of economics, into fear of people's money. We had Super Tuesday this week. We have people's fear of where our country is going. Who's going to be elected? Are we going backward or forward? Are we going to have progress? Or are we going to fall apart as a nation? I mean, it's extremes. It's extremes right now. This week was a week of extremes for me. And at the same time, we, we have to realize that these each prey on deep cultural fears. As a culture in this country, we have a fear of age. We, we idolize youth. We have a fear of death, right? We idolize life. We have, we have a fear of poverty. We idolize money. We have a fear of shame. We idolize status. We don't want to look small in the eyes of other people. We don't want to look like we don't have it all together. So we rack ourselves with anxiety and we just live in and react out of those fears every day. When, when you host a meal, when, when my gut feeling when somebody's about to come over is to just check, I've said this before, check all the things in my house. I have just sort of this anxiety, right? I want to look a certain way, right? When my family comes to visit, I have an anxiety, David had very real, life-threatening fears. He didn't discount them. I, I thought of a, a common cliche, right? I could just come up here and say to you, 99% of the things we worry about never come to pass, right? You've heard that before, right? That is so patronizing. It's like the things you're worried about don't even matter. David's not saying that. He's not saying, guys, just, just don't worry anything. It's all going to work out. 
He says, here specifically is why I can handle fear. He doesn't say I don't worry. He's worrying throughout this text, but he's doing something with his fear. He's doing something with it. He's, he's commanding it and he's giving it to someone. So I want today for us to, to realize we are so much like David. And in this psalm, in this song, he's putting us at the ground level. I, I, could, I could teach on Peter in the storm going out to meet Jesus and being afraid of the storm and sinking in the water. I could teach that for fear. I could talk about fear by, by doing an epistle from Paul and just commanding you, don't fear. But what I, what I chose to do today is to say, let's live with David. Let's relate. Let's see that the Bible understands how it is that we confront and worry and how it is that we fear. And let's learn how Jesus calms us through what David is doing here. So let's start. So the first, the first point that I want to make here, there's really three things that David's walking through, and David is not saying them this cut and dry, but I'm going to walk us through this song. Almost, I'm going to put you places. I'm going to put you in times. I'm going to, I'm going to position us and hope that we can get these, things, these three things across. The first one is that in verse 4, David says, one thing I ask. One thing I ask. When you are confronted with unexpected fear, what happens? What happens? Your mind goes into chaos, right? You just react to the thing, right? As a parent, if my, if my, if my child screams all of a sudden, which happens all the time, I just like freak out. You know, it's like my body just has a reaction to it. We do that with our fears, right? We get that text and our heart just starts racing, right? You react to it. And David says, there's one thing I do. There's one thing I am always doing. And I keep that one thing centered because when I interact with fear, I can only, I, I need to keep it simple. He says, the one thing I do is I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. That I might dwell in the house of the Lord. Basically, what David is saying is when fear confronts me, I seek, I'm active. I'm already seeking when fear comes to me and I don't stop it when fear hits me. An analogy of this, that might be familiar with any of you that have... Uh, people that you know that have been in the military, maybe yourself had military experience, you've seen, you've seen war movies, take the hill, right? When, when you're in the trenches, when, when, when soldiers are rushing the enemy, that you have to give very simple objectives when it's crazy, when something unexpected happens. Take the hill. David is saying, this is the one thing I do. I take the hill, right? I go, I have one objective, but the hill for me is to do what I'm commanded to do from God, to seek to dwell in the house of the Lord. And he, he starts to paint us a picture. Okay, so that's verse four. Let's jump back up to the beginning. What does he say about the house of the Lord? He says, the Lord is my stronghold of my life. Now, I, I sat with that word. That is a powerful word. 
I sat with that word for a minute and I thought about this. A stronghold is a place that you can retreat into. When, when the army, when, when, when you are standing, right, in, in the fields of a city, take a medieval city, right? The way those cities were structured, you would have like a castle up on a hill, right? Sometimes there's a moat around it, but then you'd have the sprawling city and villages all around. So when invading armies are gonna come in and take over that fiefdom or that, you know, that duke's area, when they're gonna do that, they rush in from all directions. They're burning houses, you know, they're, they're just laying waste to everything. And what's happening? People are fleeing. They're fleeing back to the castle, to the keep, to the stronghold. That's where they flee to be protected. And he says, the Lord is the stronghold of my life. It's the place that he retreats to in his life that can withstand anything. That can withstand anything that comes at him. Anything that fear will throw at him. Any life circumstances that will come at him. He can withstand it in this stronghold. What does that mean? What is it about this stronghold that can actually... Is he saying I can withstand... And that, that bad things won't happen to me? Kind of. He's, he's hoping. He, he's asking for God to protect him. But what he's really saying is, I have a place. I have a place where I know, because of promises and because of memory, that God is in. And I have to be very diligent in my life to understand what is the stronghold what does it mean to be in the stronghold? So he uses this word that I will dwell in the house of the Lord. When armies besiege me, when they are camped out and they're not leaving, which is what are the things that we're afraid of a lot of times, they don't go away. You'll find that even though you thought that you had conquered that fear, that as soon as that person you have a poor relationship with, where there's drama, as soon as they walk in the door, you have the feeling again, Right? You know that you, you actually haven't, you, maybe you can never actually overcome it physically, biologically, in your body, emotionally. You can't overcome it. So what do you do? You have to have a place that you go to persevere through the siege. And he says, that place for me is dwelling in the house of the Lord. And he says, I do that all the days of my life. I think for a lot of us, we dwell in the house of the Lord as Christians a little bit like this. How many of you guys have lived with roommates before? If you're married, you live with one right now in a way, right? How many of you guys have lived with roommates? When you live with roommates, there's different scenarios that you can have, right? One is that you're all friends. You all get along. Usually those are pretty good living situations. But sometimes you're in a living situation where there's like an odd person out. They're not really anybody's friend. They're just kind of paying rent. Uh, sometimes you live in a situation where you have falling out. Now you're living with an enemy. Sometimes you have a situation where um, you didn't pick who you're living with. Say college and you get assigned a roommate, right? There is such a huge difference in dwelling. We can dwell a lot of different ways. In our marriages, we can dwell as friends. And sometimes, talking to someone the other day, how's your marriage? We feel like roommates. You heard that before, right? We feel like roommates. Some of us are dwelling with God as friends, and some of us are roommates. 
right now. I'm, I'm not saying anyone in this room doesn't believe they're dwelling in the house of the Lord. I think we all believe we're dwelling. That we, I'm a Christian. I come to church. I have some kind of devotion. This is how I do my faith, right, John? Don't, don't tell me how to do my faith. This is how I do my faith. Here's what I'm asking. Isn't all the things you're doing, I'm asking at the core, are you doing these things actually to keep your space? Are you making checklists like you would make with really functional roommates to say, this is the night you do the dishes. This is the night that I clean. This is the night that, that we sweep. And you're just making sure everything gets checked off. And as long as it's checked off, you're happy. Or are you living like you would live in a, in a, in a healthy marriage, in a great friendship, where when, when something goes wrong, you give up everything and you take care of it, right? When somebody can't do the dishes for two weeks because their health is bad, right? You just jump in and you take care of it because you love them. And the same for you. They would do the same for you. How do you live with God? Are you living with God right now in your life? Essentially doing all of the religious things you're doing to say, I want this to stay the same. Don't invade my life. Don't mess my life up. You know, maybe not even don't make it really wonderful for you because then I might owe you something. Right? If you do some big miracle in my life, now I'm going to owe you. I mean, some of us are terrified of letting God actually invade our lives like we would a friend that we dwell with, that would ask something of us, where it would cost something. And then some of us are, are kind of like those roommates who are just never around. In college, I had, I had a roommate who was, I swear, nocturnal. Like, he, he I was working all day, and then um, I would come back, and he would work all night. And I was like, he would sleep all day, he would work all night. We were just opposite schedules. It's sometimes we have this relationship where we would rather not deal with God in our life and what it means to dwell with him, what it means, what he's going to ask of us. David says, one thing I do in fear is I admit that I dwell and then I seek to dwell. I seek to be with God. In verse 6, he has, he has this point of view, right? Well, sorry, first let me start here. He says this, he says, verse 2, When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Reading through some commentaries on this, People are looking at this and they say, when the wicked advance, he's remembering. So David has said, the Lord's my stronghold. I'm going to remember an event in my life. I'm going to remember when he destroyed my enemies. I'm, I'm going to first hearken and remember when fear confronts me. I'm going to first, the way that I seek, seek to dwell in the house of the Lord is I am going to remember that God is in my life and he has done things in my life. David may be remembering a specific instance. There are many times when God worked, worked in his life. But he may also be looking simply at what God has done for the people of Israel, which is something we can do too. This, this verse comes to mind in how he's looking at, at the enemies stumbling and falling. Exodus 14. The Israelites have fleed Pharaoh into Egypt, right? They are a, a slave people. No military. They're just 
hauling out of there. God has destroyed Pharaoh's like emotional well-being by taking his firstborn son, not to mention laying waste to like his amazing civilization. And he just says, get out of here. I want nothing to do with you. And they're fleeing and they're going across the, they're confronting the Red Sea. And in verse 19, it says, then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went before them and the pillar of cloud moved before them and stood behind them. So God in his presence is very much there visibly. And he's doing, he's been doing all the work for them. It says, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning, Watch the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud look down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And we all know what happens after that. We all know what happens. The Lord conquers their foes. David has perhaps personal memories, but certainly biblical records of how the Lord works. It wasn't David that did the conquering. He always attributed, even, even with his cunning, he was hiding in caves, running from Saul. Even in his cunning, he is saying, it's the Lord who does it. See, by seeking to dwell and to be in close friendship, in marriage, you would say, he attributes the goodness to the one he dwells with. How many of you in a conversation that are married here, in a conversation where you have a spouse, you've heard this said, well, my better half, right? Or she would do this much better than me. Or it's all because of him, right? Like we have a way of complimenting each other. Sometimes it's, let's be honest, sometimes it's a little bit of a guise and you're going, really? Uh, but we have a way of saying and trying to attribute to the other and recognizing that they're a huge part of why. Maybe they're the only reason why we can do what we can do. David's saying, my dwelling in the house of the Lord is my attributing even my memories, even the memories of my life where I was overcome with fear and God took care of my enemies. I attribute it to God, not to me. So I challenge us with that. Are there times in our life where, where we ought to look back and see, God has done amazing things in my life. I have so much been attributing my success in my education, at my work, in my friendships and community. I've been actually attributing it to myself. If I look back, I go, man, I'm figuring this out. Look at me. I'm getting kind of puffed up about it. Or are we saying, God has been so good to me. I don't deserve any of this. What is our gut response? Do we live our life thinking highly of ourselves because we've done so much and we've worked so hard, we've pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps? Perhaps that's the way you were raised. Or do we live our life reprogramming that narrative, building it day by day the right way as David is by seeking one thing to dwell? 
And by day by day seeking to dwell, we begin to build a structure of our life where we are attributing those things. Right? When it rings false, when a spouse is talking about their other half being so great, is when they know. It's like if I'm standing here and Megan's talking about that to me, and I know, let's flip it. Let's flip it. If I'm talking to Megan that way, <laughs> and she goes, but John doesn't think that at home. He's just saying that. There's a huge difference. God knows that. He's not here to condemn us for that. But this is such a good reminder. Am I seeking the one thing to dwell? Do I even have a license to call out to God? Am I attributing the things I remember? So, so David starts, he faces fear, he remembers, and he says, God is the reason that I'm even here right now. God is the reason I'm sitting here in this room. God is the reason I'm standing up to you here preaching. He's the reason I'm here. I'm going to reframe my life that way. That is how I'm going to seek to dwell with him. And then what's, what's wild about this is David takes us sort of poetically, like he would in a song, right? You teleport somebody to different places and times, and the lyrics tell you where you are and what's happening. So in the beginning, he's confronting the enemy. In verse 2, he's recalling how God has conquered them. And then in 3, he's back with the enemy. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. Why? Because I know I'm where I am because of the grace of God. Last week, we talked about the conviction of sin in Acts 2, right? As being the basis. These are parallel thoughts. Because I am so convicted that I need God to be, to exist, much less to live eternally. For that reason, I can believe that he will come and help me again. Though an army besiege me, I will be confident. And then in verse 4 through 6, he kind of goes into this space, 4 through 5. He comes into this space where he, he is dwelling. He's imagining. He's saying, one thing I ask that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. Now here's the image that David's imagining. He has put himself into an imagination. He so, know God, he so knows God's character that now you can imagine that put yourself in his shoes. You're standing at the top of the parapet. You're standing at the top of the stronghold. You're looking down and the enemies are many, but they're small little dots all across the horizon. And you are up behind thick walls of stone high up in the air. And what lies between you and the enemy? Just like this, this intense wall of God. David is standing, giving us this image of being high, being exalted. And the enemies still surround him, but he has a proper perspective. That's the huge difference here. He's saying the fear is still the same. The circumstances are still the same. The reasons to be afraid are still the same. But here's the difference. I dwell in the house of the Lord. I dwell in the stronghold. I am high above them. 
I look down and I see my enemy for what it is. I see that God has already won. They are not getting through this. You know how I know? Because of events like Exodus. Because of events in my life where I go, God shows up. He will protect me. So there's this powerful, sort of emotional reminder that he gives himself. And I, I could take you one space here. I could say, really, the way, what, what, John, what you're really saying here is the way not to be afraid is just to, to not think anything of your circumstances. You know, it's kind of like Buddhism, non-attachment. Right? Just don't get attached to it. Don't let it affect you. Be in nirvana. Right? Be, like, it's all, we're all one. But that's not what I'm saying. I've grappled with that very thing. I've grappled and said, isn't this just non-attachment? Is my pain just because I wanted that? And now that's, it. no. This is what Christianity says. It says not non-attachment, singular attachment. Our fears come from the fact that we are attached, yes, all over the place. Buddhism has that right. We are attached to things all over the place that we ought not to be attached to. But it's not to let go of all of them. It's to cling to one to dwell. When you are in the stronghold, when you're taking the hill, right? Those two things seem totally different. In my fear, John, you're saying I'm supposed to retreat into the stronghold, right? What does that mean? Am I, are you saying run into isolation? I, I could see myself walking out of here, hearing this and saying, I feel like I'm just supposed to go into my room and lock the door and pray and read my Bible. Those are not bad things. But I'm not saying you're supposed to go into isolation. Dwelling in the stronghold might be taking the hill. In fact, for David, it is. He's saying, I'm going to go on the offensive with my fear. Because my fear is going to barrel at me. I've got to go on the offensive. I've got to lead a counter-offensive against my fear. How does he do that? Our second point. One thing I seek is to dwell. Second point, seek it first. You can't dwell unless you've put it first. Seek first. So, how do I get to this? We go through to verse 7, right? He's been exalted. He's standing on the parapet. He's singing out in joy. He's so excited, right? He sees that God is his protector. And then in verse 7, he is right back in the thick of it. And they are like rushing him. They're like six feet away and he's going to die, right? This is how our fears feel, isn't it? We, we feel, we, we hang out with somebody, we have a good night, we feel like everything's going well, we go to bed, we're happy, no fears. We wake up petrified with fear. How many, uh, this week, that's happened to me multiple times. You, you think everything's fine, you kind of have a euphoria, things seem well, you're in good community, maybe you had a great conversation with an old friend. You wake up the next morning and it's just like the doldrums of life. And you're just like, how do I get through? What do I do? David gets you. He, he goes right after being in like ecstatic euphoria. He's screaming out in pain. He's crying out to God. And he's saying, hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. God first says, Seek my face, right? My heart says of you, seek his face. That, the, the Hebrew for that word seek is 
plural, like addressed to a crowd. And so what it's saying is he has been instructed to seek God's face. He knows, we know, right now I'm telling you, as a group, seek God's face, dwell with God, know him, live with him. David is responding in a very specific way. He says, your face, Lord, I will seek. So the response, the ask that I'm giving here emphatically to you is when you hear things in a community, when you hear things broadcast like this, they are for you personally. And the response is a personal response that says, I will seek that. I will seek that one thing. I will seek it first. Your face, Lord, I will seek. There's, there's in the New Testament, Matthew 6, Jesus is all over this in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all your righteousness will be added. All these things will be added unto you. That the whole, the whole, um, the whole section there, I'm going I'm to read some of it. Because he's talking about exactly what we're dealing with prior to that statement. He says, why are you anxious about clothing? By the way, it's like a relief probably to some of you that back then people were still concerned about their clothing, what they were going to wear. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They never toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Therefore don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious about itself, Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Jesus wants to dwell with him first. That's, isn't that the difference between a good friend and a roommate? Priority. Isn't that the difference? My kids know so well if, if I really am loving them that day, if I'm not scheduling and writing them in, for their concerns, their urgent concerns, if I'm not putting them off, right? Seek it first. He says, you've told me to seek your face, so Lord, I'm going to seek it. Jesus says, seek it first. And he says, in turn, do not hide your face from me. Don't turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Don't reject me or forsake me, God my Savior. So he's saying, I am going to prioritize you. I must prioritize you. And I have to do it first. This, this convicted me this week because so often I kind of tack on. God's everywhere. He's all present. We did the whole series on the Holy Spirit. Right? I know he's here with me. So I don't, I don't necessarily need to sort of like invoke or do anything or pray before my meal or whatever it is that the thing that feels legalistic or whatever. And I was convicted this week. I need to be inviting God into my life first, first in my day, first when I'm facing fear. That God is not, is not giving me all of these things that I can tackle fear with so I can just 
go and figuring out and use my brain and like I have an answer for that. Yes, he says, that's all good. He says, seek me first. Before you, your finances are in ruin, you have that budget meeting or you sit down and you look and go, why are things not adding up this month? Yes, plan it out. Yes, sit down and make hard decisions, but seek God first. What a difference that makes. What a difference that would make. Point three, trust when you're seeking first. Trust seeking first. Now, you might say, John, that's not rocket science. That's basically what you already said, right? Of course, I should trust it. This, this is the turn of phrase here is trust seeking first. Trust prioritizing God before all the other things you have to get done. That's what takes the trust in our life right? Our, our lives are built with God incorporated into them. We say we're Christians. We believe in Jesus and what he's done. We have a rhythm. We have a style. We do it this way. Is the way that you're living out your faith with God as a priority that you are seeking first? Because that will require you to trust. It will require you to trust him when nothing is making sense. When pain makes you think that God is distant. Right? One of the ways we deal with pain as Christians is we kind of become deists. We think God made everything, and because nothing looks anything like his kingdom on this earth, because nothing looks anything like it, because though we have followed him, our health is in ruins. Though we have followed him, our job and career is in ruins. Though we have followed him, our friendships, we haven't found the one. We haven't done, because of all those things, we say, we rationalize and we say, I still believe in God. I just, he's not really in control. If he was really in control, these things wouldn't be happening to me. If God was really in control and really loved me, this wouldn't be. And it made me think of the famous line, some of you have heard me say this before, the famous line, that C.S. Lewis, Lewis writes in Narnia, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, about Aslan. Right? Aslan, the lion, the, the metaphor for Christ. He says, the kids are talking to, to the beaver, and they're talking about Aslan, and they say, he's, he's wild? Isn't he safe? And he says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good, I tell you. He's the king. In verse 5, when David says, he will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent, the word there for shelter is lair. It's a lion's lair. He will hide me in his lair. He is a wild lion. But we dwell, we ride on the back of the wild lion. We dwell with him. We are with him. Everything he's about, we want. So in all the crazy in all of the chaos, in all of the pain, we trust that because we are on his back, he is going to ride us through this. We are going to get there. He's not going to turn and attack us. Even to death, even at death's door, we have a promise of goodness and mercy. As Christians, we do not seek to first live the longest and then worship God. Right now, with this epidemic, it is our gut feeling to say, 
I would probably deprioritize God right now in serving the least of least and loving each other to be healthy and strong. And I'm telling you right now, that is not the message of the gospel. That is not dwelling with God. Dwelling with God is having faith and seeking him first and saying, when those two things collide, I choose to be with the wild lion. To dwell with him and to trust in having that first. There's, there's two ways he, ta- he, he describes this. He says, what is, what is dwelling exactly, John? What is dwelling? He says, verse 11, teach me your way, Lord. Lead me on the level path. On the straight path in the NIV. Better said the level path. Some other translations say level. I think it's much better because what he's saying is, it's a path where you won't stumble. It's a path that is made to be sure-footed. That the way of the Lord to dwell with him is to learn and be led on a sure path. Now, there's two, there's two sides of that sure path. One is the cold side. One is the side some of us may be familiar with with our upbringing is, it's the truth, so just do it. This is the way it should be done. This is what the Bible says, so you need to do it. Of course, what that ultimately creates for us is just a hyper-legalism, Right? We grow up in a church and a faith where we are doing all of the things, but God does not love us and none of our pain makes any sense. You have to have both parts of the level path. Because the second part of that sure footing is the promise that God loves you. He says in verse 10, he says, Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Even in times where what you have done, he's saying, he's saying this hypothetically, even though in times where what you have done would make even your father and mother disown you. God's with you. Go to prison. Murder somebody. Like, he's getting drastic. He's saying those things at which depart from your parents' religion. They don't want you anymore. They're now trying to convert you. He's saying, I have not forsaken you. That's the other part of the sure footing is a trust, not just in the truth and the coldness, but a trust that God is calming our fear. God is not just instructing and berating us for being afraid. God is calming our fear. He's saying, I have asked you first to seek my face. I wouldn't ask you if by seeking you weren't sure footed, you weren't loved. And then this psalm ends in like a stark ending. You would, expect, you would expect the psalm to end in a way where suddenly, now we're back at street level with David, right? Suddenly, his foes are overtaken by a pillar of fire. The sea rushes in and takes him out. What does it say? Verse 12, do not turn me over the desire of my foes. He's still crying out for false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. He says, I remain confident of this, I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He's so confident he will see it materialize in his life. And he says, wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. That's how it ends. And that's where we are. Wait. Be confident. This, Derek Kidner is a commentator on the Psalms great commentaries on this. He says, this psalm ends, it's a psalm of devotion because it ends in naked faith. 
to dwell in the house of the Lord is to be completely and confidently faithful that God will show up. So yes, I'm, I'm, some of my points I'm saying do. Do seek to dwell. Do seek it first. Do trust. Those are actions that we do. We're taking the hill, but we're doing it because we have faith in the sure-footed, the level path, the promises. And I want to say this. I was, I was thinking about an example of this. And I was thinking about, any of you seen that movie, Dunkirk? The Battle of Dunkirk? So maybe you know the story, right? The story of Dunkirk is that all of the Allied troops, this is before the U.S. has gotten into the war, World War II. Before they're in the war, all the troops have fled. They're overtaken by German forces. The Blitzkrieg, they've just all gone up to the beachfront. And they're just holed up there. And it has happened so fast that Britain has no exit plan for its troops. Nothing. They are literally walled against the ocean and they're just going to be gunned and shot down and all of them will be killed. Right? That's the scenario. Those soldiers are doing exactly as they're commanded every step of the way. They didn't do anything wrong to get to the place they were in as people. They were serving their country. They were aligned. They were dwelling, so to speak. They were seeking. They were, pride. They were good soldiers. And life had dealt them a scenario, right? A hard place where their fears were everywhere, where they were confronting their fears. And of course, we know the end of that story is that in the most ragtag fashion, God shows up for them, right? For those who are religious on those shores, God showed up for them that day. He showed up to deliver them. But it took, it took them, it took on both sides a service to something much higher. To get on a sailboat or a motorboat or your family's ski boat and go across the channel to the German forces to save your guys, to save your brothers and your friends, takes a faith in something higher, in a higher ideal. I'm not saying all these people were Christians. I'm saying they had faith in something bigger, that they were waiting and they had faith. And that because of that, they were willing to be the hands of God. And I think for us, church, there's, there's an encouragement that I really want to make here. I want to say this. In confronting our fear, yes, there's an individual component to what we do as a church. There's a way we tackle fear. There is a way that we rely on God. There's a way we live in faith. But there is also a way that we reach out to others to be the hands of God, to be the community that saves, to be Jesus for each other as a church. Deuteronomy 31, 6 says, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is your Lord, your God, who goes with you. He will not leave or forsake you. And Origen, one of the early church fathers, literally this is the name of it, exhortation to martyrdom he's like encouraging people to live to, this is the early church he's encouraging people to live to the death for this an exhortation to martyrdom he's saying it may be that these words are spoken by the prophet of no one else by the savior talking about this psalm who feared no one because of the light and salvation given from the father so he's talking that this is speaking of no one but the savior of jesus who was afraid of no one because of the protection which God shielded him. 
And his heart was not at all fearful when the entire host of Satan encamped around him. His heart filled with sacred teaching, hoped in God when war rose up against him. All of us here are in imminent threat of death, whether we realize it or not. We have no idea when we'll die. No clue. We are, it is totally out of our control. And yet we live in a culture with extensive comforts. We live in a time of decadence. If we're not careful, our decadence will be our undoing. We will be encouraged by culture to deprioritize God from first to second, third, fourth, just somewhere as long as it's happening, right? It is a priority for us to live in faith to keep him first because Jesus would not have been able to do what he did for us, to die for us, to see the future coming, to see the significance, to be in the presence of his betrayer and yet die for him if it was not first for him to also seek the kingdom of God and to trust deeply in that. Let's pray. God, we, we thank you that we have somebody like David who, who gets us, who understands fear, who understands that, that life is really difficult and that when you enter it, it's not that our circumstances necessarily change. It's that we can see it from high up in a stronghold, God. Lord, I, I pray that you would move us in our hearts, that we would do the pieces you're calling us to do because what you have first done for us. Because you have commanded us to seek you, God, we can be faithful in seeking you because we know you are good and loving, even though we are, you were wild. We know you are the King, Lord. We pray this in your Son's name.